The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book 3, The Wanderer's Curse. Chapter 3, in which Elusive Revives. Derek leaned against a barrelhead and surveyed the taproom of the black sheep with satisfaction. He was starting his second week as a server, and the job suited him much better than crewing his father's fishing boat or working his uncle's farm. He smiled when he thought of how easy it had been. The mayor's niece was sweet on him. She'd told her uncle what a fine fellow he was, and his worship had asked him to join the sheriff's men after Walt had been kidnapped from his pub. Best of all, the mayor had seen Derek punch out one of the strangers from the castle. After that, it was easy to get what he regarded as the best job in Charton. A figure in a shapeless cloak pushed open the heavy door, paused on the top step, and surveyed the taproom. The well-worn oilcloth covered everything but his head and hands. His woolen cap had holes, and he seemed the picture of a man down on his luck. "'Shut the hatch!' growled a voice from one of the tables. The man's black-stubbled chin lifted as if he were about to speak. Then he nodded slowly, shoved the door closed behind him, and made his way to an unoccupied table near the fireplace where a couple of logs smoldered. He sat down, sniffed, gave a little snort of disapproval, folded his hands on the table, and fixed his black eyes on Derek, who, entirely without meaning to, started towards him as if he'd been kicked. He slowed to negotiate the customers at the intervening tables, and deliberately slouched up to the table. "'You got coin?' he demanded insolently. The man slowly raised his chin and focused on Derek's face. His black eyes did not blink. The lad's shoulders sagged, and his whole posture changed from an insult to a cringe. He dropped his head and let his hair fall across his eyes, as if it would protect him from that dark stare. The newcomer cleared his throat. <clears throat> Beer. And what you have that's ready to eat? There was something behind the soft voice words that made the server uneasy. Show me, murmured Derek, and paused, caught by the man's unblinking gaze. I, I have to ask. Unable to continue, his thick lips sagged open in a slack, ingratiating smile. "'Tell me what food you offer.' His stare locked onto Derek's eyes, his body motionless. Uh, "'The soup's ready, and this cold roast ham, and the cook can fry you up some taters and cod cheeks in no time, but—' "'Yes.' "'Uh, yes what?' "'Yes to all. Beer, soup, bread, fish, ham.' In that order. Go. Now. Though his voice was little more than a whisper, the effect was infinitely more contemptuous than if he had called the lad an idiot. Still maintaining his uncanny stillness, he flexed his wrists, raising his hands a finger's breadth from the table. Coins clinked against wood. Derek nodded quietly several times, and hurried to the kitchen while the stranger sat under his cloak as if carved. But when the lad's back was turned, his head bowed towards his hands, which shook as his fingers touched his temples. 
When his beer and food arrived, the dark-eyed man ate slowly but steadily. As customers came and went, he was inconspicuously observant, hiding his glances under his lowered head. Near nightfall, a careful observer might have seen him take a second look at a heavy-set sailor with dark hair and a matching moustache, who entered the taproom, strode confidently to an empty table, and demanded food and drink with the air of a regular customer. A raised finger and a compelling stare brought Derek to the silent man's table. He ordered a tot of whiskey, which he sipped while he covertly watched the sailor eat and drink. When the sailor had finished his meal, risen to his feet and heavily climbed the stair to the rooms above, his feet thudding on the wooden steps, the stranger summoned Derek and softly asked for the tally. His hands disappeared under the cloak, reappeared swiftly, and deposited a small pile of coins on the table. The server swept the money into his palm and would have counted it had he not been speared by a look. Derek fell back a step and then returned to the kitchen, counting as he went. The man had paid the exact amount. Instead of resentment over the absence of a tip, Derek only felt relief when he turned and saw that the table by the fire was now empty. He did not see the cloaked figure taking the stairs two at a time. When he reached the dark upper hallway, the black-eyed man walked silently from door to door, listening. When he was rewarded by the unmistakable sound of boots dropping to the floor, he continued to wait for a couple of breaths. One hand rose towards his head, trembled for an instant, steadied, and then swiftly opened the door. He stepped through and closed it behind him. Slowly, almost casually, he turned back one side of his cloak, revealing black shark-skin clothes. A knife-hilt glinted in the light of a brass-bound lantern, beside the bed where the sailor was sitting only a pace away. "'What in thunder are you doing in my—' The sailor stood bare-chested, his breeks around his ankles. He looked up into the lean face above him and froze. Mofred. "'It's a problem, isn't it, Kurt?' You'd like the knife in your belt down there at your feet. But if you bend over, you bring your head to where I can do serious damage to your face. And if you take a step, you'll fall over. So sit. Very still. M master I, I... We... You thought I was dead. Wrong again, Kurt. But then thinking has never been one of your specialties, has it? So, Kurt, are you pleased to see me? I, I... Not really. I understand. It spoils the happy time you're having here in the inn. Eating, drinking, probably cheating some of the locals in the odd game of chance. Perhaps looking about for some way you might buy into a profitable little enterprise nearby. Am I right, Kurt? Kurt started one hand down towards the waistband of his breeks. Mufrid's right hand moved so quickly that Kurt did not see the knife until it was a finger's length from his face. Kurt froze, and then slowly held out both hands, the fingers wide and trembling. With a huge effort of will, Mufrid kept his voice disconcertingly quiet as the tip of the knife pulsed in time with a sudden throbbing pain in his temples. So, Kurt, did you share what you stole from elusive strongbox? 
Kurt's eyes widened and his mouth opened soundlessly. I didn't think so. How many of them are still alive? My master, you'd have done, done the same. Uh, elusive was on the rocks, nobody to command her. I can't work the stones, so... You killed all of them, Kurt? Two. Well, three. They, they wanted equal shares. And you were the head thief. You only needed them because the box was too heavy for you by yourself. Kurt nodded. We, we, we got it aboard the boat and c covered it up. The others never knew. They ran off as soon as we got ashore. They were prudent. The pounding in Mufrid's head reduced somewhat and his knife steadied. I, I thought you was dead and, and you thought wrong. I'm alive and I want what you stole, what you killed for. Where's the strong box, Kurt? It's not here. I didn't think for a moment that it was. It's, it's, it's where you're going to take me, isn't it, Kurt? The knife point described a small questioning circle. Kurt swallowed with difficulty and nodded. Reach for your breeks, Kurt, slowly. That's it. Now stop. Kurt half stood, his hands holding his breeks at mid-thigh. Mufrid's knife slashed low. Kurt stepped back instinctively and fell onto the bed, bending his knees to protect his crotch. Mufrid chuckled. <laughs> you thought I was going to slice your hosepipe, didn't you, Kurt? But that would have made a mess of your cabin, wouldn't it? And we wouldn't want that, would we? Kurt slowly lowered his knees, panting with relief. Stand, Mufrid ordered. Kurt stood, and his breeks immediately fell to his ankles, slipped down the front. Pick him up, Kurt. Pull your belt out slowly, and drop it, along with your knife. Now kick it into the corner. Right. Now put on your jacket, stick both your hands in its pockets, and hold up your breeks as you walk ahead of me to wherever you hid the strong box. But, but it's not night time. All the better. Can I wear my boots? No. With one hand on his shoulder, Mufrid walked Kurt out of the inn. Few noticed them go, because it was fast approaching closing time, and the inn's customers were glazed by food and drink into varying degrees of stupor. Once outside, Mufrid changed hands to hold his knife at Kurt's neck, and started talking in the calm, quiet voice that terrified his prisoner, even more than had he shouted. You're a fool, Kurt. You know that. But you're a useful fool, so I'll share my plans with you. Soon I will take back command of Elusive and conclude repairs. Then I'll find my boys and inform, if necessary persuade them, that the oldest member of the family, that's me, Kurt, is the new Grand Master. We'll sail south, rebuild the fleet... Set up a base in the southern islands from which we can visit the coastal communities whenever we need whatever. Good plan, Kurt? Kurt felt the edge of Mufrid's knife on his skin and grunted. Hmm. For this to happen, I need what's in the strongbox, which is where we're going, isn't it, Kurt? At your command, Master. It, it's not far. Past the last fish wharf. Down near the beach. 
Ah, yes, Kirk, the beach. That's where I arrived. Fortunately, I was wearing my shark skins. That black rig that you don't deserve to wear will keep a man from drowning. Hold him up, keep him warm, protect his skin from being torn to shreds by rocks and barnacles and the like. And most important, turn a knife slash, as the last but one of the seafoam's crew found out. A little too late to do him any good. Are you attending to this, Kurt? Yes, I mean, at your command. Master, we decided to leave it there so that if you... Oh, come now, that's a clumsy lie, Kurt. It may have worked to scare off the men who came with you in the boat, but don't make me impatient. Kurt was silent. He led Mufrid off the wharf and onto a track that wandered through the salt grasses where the shingle beach met the marshy lowland. He could not think beyond the evil promise so close to his neck, and he knew that in bare feet with his hands in his pockets he could not outrun Mufrid's knife. Moonlight shimmered on the water and turned the grasses grey at his feet. Every few paces the path wound through a bushy, wind-stunted spruce tree that threw a black shadow in their way. Every time Kurt's bare feet stumbled, the knife pressed into his skin, a hair's breadth from drawing blood. Finally, where the path skirted a tangle of bushes, he came to a stop and faced the sea. The boat's re real close now, uh, just behind the trees. Don't gabble at me, Kurt. I know where the boat is. It's the strong box I need. It, it's under. We, we buried it, rolled the boat over it. Do you... <laughs> Do you know why that's funny, Kurt? No idea, Master. No idea. What a splendid way of describing your tiny mind. Well, Kurt, when I waded ashore, I saw Elusive's boat neatly turned upside down in the bushes above the tide line, right where a person such as yourself might want to retrieve it. Then why did you bring me? Kurt began, the words popping out of his mouth before he could stop himself, an ugly answer coming swiftly to his mind. Here's the way it is, Kurt, said Mufrin taking the last few steps to where the boat lay, a dark shape on the pale sand. You are a nuisance. I can't have you wandering around now you know I'm alive. But if you don't go back to your room, people will wonder, perhaps look around, maybe find the boat, even stumble on the strong box, which are reasons for not letting you go. And if I do let you go, you'll either run or blab, or both. Mufrid's voice was soft as if to a child, but his knife was under Kurt's chin. I swear I won't tell anyone, Master. Ah, you're safe with me. I can help. Please br bring me, bring your stuff. Uh, find you somewhere to live. Please, please. Kurt, I know you. All the way from the inn, you've been wondering when it will be safe for you to kill me. No, 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 you're the Master. Uh, I'd never do that. You would if you could. But there are two reasons why you won't. Fear and greed. Fear that I'll finish you here and now. Don't do that, Master. I, I beg you, I don't, don't... Good. You understand the fear part. Now for the greed. I'm going to tell you what you're going to do and why I'm going to let you live. No idea, you said? Exactly. 
you will have no ideas, Kurt. You will do exactly what I say. At your command, master. That's the spirit. My first command is that you face me. How many men are doing what aboard Elusive? I can see lights at night, and I want to know why they haven't got her off the reef yet. Now, talk. Mufrid stood by the upturned boat, his knife still ready. Kurt stood silhouetted in the moonlight in front of him. Reprieve from death made him garrulous. I, I, I don't know nothing firsthand. Didn't, didn't go near the ship after I left her, because I, I don't want them, I don't want them to see me. But I've got eyes and ears. They're, they're waiting to float her off at high water. But that can't be until the tides are right. So they've been working on our hull and, and what's left of her spars and rigging. They've come ashore for water, but I haven't tried to buy anything, uh, except for beer at the end. Charton folks were expecting rapes and murders. First days, there was nary a girl or a woman on the streets or down at the wharf. Men with clubs and hatchets standing watch at night, and speeches by the mayor. Then, when they saw that it wasn't no danger, everyone went back to... Mufrid listened with increasing impatience and suddenly held up his hand. Kurt stopped in mid-sentence. Where's the dwarf in all of this? The innkeeper? The one they call Stumpy? They say he left, oh, well, days ago, back when we were still at sea. The night we got here, a handful of young thieves took over the place for a couple of days. Men from north of here rode in after them. There was a fine punch-up, but when it was all over, Stumpy had vanished. They say he'd slipped away aboard a boat. Hmm. The crab-hauler from the north. So that's how. What? Go on about the mare. I, I, I hear he thinks there's all kinds of treasure and stuff aboard Elusive. He's taken charge of the inn, and he's looking for customers, so he's ready to let the lads come ashore. You know, drink his beer, buy provisions, put coin in the hands of all the important folks, especially him. It's my bet that when they're comfortable about taking shore leave, he's going to make his move. Grab them what's ashore, take over the ship, and before that happens, I've been planning to make myself scarce. I can imagine that you don't want one of your shipmates pointing a finger at you and saying, he's one of the thugs who ran the ship for our late lamented master. Well, something like that. Then you need to find me somewhere to live until I can take command of Elusive again. Heartened that he had a place in Mufrid's plans, Kurt stood more confidently daring to take one hand out of his pocket so that he could wipe away the sweat that was cooling on his face. Have you been throwing money around? No, 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 no point in it. I just took out one of the money bags for, for expenses, like. I left the rest because I wanted to rest up, look around, and then collect your loot to buy yourself a comfortable living. Somewhere nobody knows you're a thieving, murdering bully. How much have you on you or in your room? Kurt stood on one leg like a boy being reprimanded. A about half a bag, master, just, just silver. I, I was going to come back and... So, Kurt, now you're here. So you can haul up the strong box and we'll see what's left and decide what we're going to do with it. Only difference is that you won't be your own paymaster. So dig it up, Kurt, or you won't have any pocket money. The moon brightened as a thin cloud blew away. In its light, they could see clearly, but the shadow cast by the boat was so black as to appear solid. 
Under you go, Kurt. Drag the strong box out where we can see what we're doing. Kurt went down on hands and knees, then onto his stomach, rolled and vanished. From under the boat came the sounds of digging, punctuated by the occasional thump and muttered curses. Mufred scanned the beach and sea beyond, got up from the boat and sat on one of the solid tufts of marsh grass that crowned the low sand dunes. He shrugged the oilcloth cloak off his shoulders, and his black-clad body blended with its own shadow as moonlight fell across the upturned boat, obscuring the depression into which Kurt had disappeared. Unbidden, Mufrid's hands reached for his temples, where he felt a pulse under his fingertips. He held his breath, forcing himself to be calm. Very slowly, the pounding in his head diminished, but did not go away. After a while, Kurt reappeared feet first, and with much grunting, pulled the brass-bound shallow box out from under the boat, and then into the moonlight at Mufrid's feet. He crouched on the opposite side of the box so that the two men faced each other. Kurt smiled ingratiatingly. Here it is, master. Kurt fumbled with the clasp, then partially raised the lid with one hand, lowering his head as if to see what he was doing. As he slid his other hand inside, Mufrid rose, took one step forward, and stamped on the lid, crushing Kurt's hand and forcing him to his knees. Mufrid drove his black-clad arm upwards like a man throwing underhand. For an instant his knife-blade was a silvery arc in the moonlight before it disappeared into Kurt's throat. Goodbye, Kurt. Then, as if Kurt could still hear him, he went on speaking. The night I crawled out of the sea and under the boat, I scraped a hole in the sand for my hip, rolled myself into it, and bumped against something that wasn't sand, wasn't rock, wasn't something the sea threw up. It was the strong box, Kurt, with your spare knife under the lid, you treacherous mutineer. And you know what happens to those who mutiny, don't you, Kurt? Well, not having a rope and a yard arm handy, I had to improvise. The pulse in his temples pounding, he staggered to the water's edge and collapsed to his knees, his breath rasping in his throat. Then, as he regained control, he washed the blood from his knife and hand and splashed cold sea water onto his face until the thudding pressure in his head diminished. When he was done, he stood looking at the harbour, where the mastless hulk of his ship was a black shape against glimmering water. The sight steadied him to something close to normalcy, and he looked down at where little waves lifted the reeds, sticks, and other flotsam that marked the high tide line. Mufrid picked up a couple of short, sea-smoothed logs that were rolling back and forth in the water, and returned to the boat. He turned it over so that it rested right way up on the logs and then tugged, levered, and hauled it toward the water. As he struggled, the moon set behind the westward cliffs, and he was forced to work by feel in pitch darkness, deprived of starlight by high clouds. One moment he was pushing until his back cracked with the effort of moving the boat a mere arm's length. Then he was bent over, hands on knees, waiting for the pounding in his head to abate. Then he had to grovel in the sand to reposition logs under its keel. After many exhausting repetitions that achieved nothing he could see in the muffling blackness, he felt the boat's stern start to float, and he knew that one more good shove would slide it into the sea. 
he fumbled his way back to where Kurt's body lay beside the strong box and slid the corpse into the hole that Kurt had dug. Then he opened the box and removed the top layer of fist-sized leather bags. He held each one close to his ear to catch the musical clinking of silver and gold within and carefully piled them together on the lid. Then he dragged the box until his foot slid down the hole and fetched up against Kurt's corpse. One by one, he pulled out the remaining two layers of leather bags and emptied them onto the body. The contents of those bags did not jingle. Handfuls of coin-shaped lumps of lead thudded into the sandy hole. In between bags, Mufrid talked quietly to his victim. Kurt, you stupid lover. Any real sailor would tell you that strong boxes are for thieves. You thought you had a fortune in gold when most of what you were stealing was lead ballast. Should have looked further, Kurt. Should have known that you were stupid. Shouldn't have tried to take me with a knife I knew you'd hidden for that very purpose. When he was done, Wilfred scraped sand over the body until he was patting it level with his hands. He carefully replaced the bags of gold and silver in the much-lightened strong box, slid it down to the boat, now faintly visible against water that glimmered in starlight, and hefted it into the stern. Then he sat down on the sand, leaned against the boat, breathed steadily for a few moments, and then deliberately revisited memories that still rankled even after the release brought on by killing Kurt. He recalled years before, when Oron refused to give him back the power that he had squandered twice over. He clenched his teeth, as he had done after he had carelessly drowned his clasp only days after it had been granted. He felt again the stomach-knotting first time when he had realized that he had lost his ring ashore. Mufrid's head throbbed as he thought back to the years during which he submitted to Oron's command, hoping that some day he would once again feel the tingle of a green stone on his arm. He revisited the despair he had felt when he knew that his father no longer had the ability or strength to grant him a new clasp, even if he wanted to, and that he was doomed to remain a mere sailing-master, reliant on a boy's power over the shipstone that should have been his to command. That was when the headaches had begun. His temper, always dangerous, became lethal. He gave a simple choice to the men and boys he kidnapped, obey or die. After a few demonstrations that he meant what he said, he became aware that he was making himself a target for revenge. So he recruited desperate men to enforce his will and protect him from his own crew. Mufrid thought back to the moment when Dabby had told him that Spindrift had not moved in more than a year. Justifying himself that Alnair had broken Zubin's law of the wandering, he bullied, bribed, and drove his crew to take over the village that Spindrift's crew had built. Then, when Alnair had died in agony after finally revealing where he had hidden his shipstone, Mufrid had ordered the killing to begin. His breath came short as he recalled the moment of triumph as Elusive sailed away from the murdered village. He had stalked across the deck and down to the forbidden room, the shipstone in its case in one hand, Alnair's clasp on his arm. But the stone in the clasp was dull and the door had not opened to his hand. He had screamed with rage 
until Dabby came out trembling, and then he had thrashed the boy with his bare hands until some last vestige of sense had told him that he was killing his only way to navigate the ship. He had mastered that fit of rage, but not the one that followed months later. Yan's terrified attempt to barter for his life with Spindrift Shipstone led to gruesome sessions in which the throbbing in Mufred's head eased in proportion to the torture he inflicted on the helpless lad. But Yan's screams and eventual sobbing plea to be finally rid of all pain did not restore the stone on Mufred's arm. Yan's death came only hours before reaching the city of the sea, leaving Mufred seething with oft-thwarted ambition. And then, as he boarded Cygnus to the humiliating drumming of two fewer heels than a master, he had seen the clasp on Astraea's arm, and in the moment decided to steal light for his own stone. When he forced the two clasps together, a tingling rush ran up his arm to his brain so that he almost fell to the deck beside Astraea. But he had held himself together until he was aboard Elusive, eager to enter the forbidden room which had been closed to him for so long, and there to plot how he could become Grand Master. What did it matter to him that there were only two ships remaining? He knew where to find more, as well as the men to sail them. He placed his palm on the metal door, his fingers tingled, and the door did not open. Mufrid's heart raced, and dizziness made him clutch at the bulkhead. When he heard footsteps behind him, he turned, saw Dabby, and for a few heartbeats he stared, wondering why the boy was swaying back and forth. He passed his hand across his face and felt sweat on his palm. Slowly, as he began to see more clearly, he grasped that Dabby had not moved, and it was his vision that was at fault. He wanted to order Dabby to open the door, but the words stuck in his mouth and he stammered incoherently. Steadying himself against the sides of the passage, he contrived to walk the few steps to his cabin, pull open the door, step in, and close it behind him before slumping to the cabin's soul. Not long after, he summoned Dabby and demanded a full report. On hearing that Cygnus was headed north, he gave orders to follow, and then collapsed again. While Dabby and Astraea exhausted each other navigating and commanding their respective ships, Mufrid gradually recovered his strength, until when Cygnus and Elusive eventually met, he was recharged with the determination to exact revenge, and in so doing, to bring the clasp he had stolen up to full strength, even if it cost Astraea his life. Mufrid recalled the fight with Astraea, and shivered. He'd been so sure of the outcome when it began. But for the first time in his life he'd faced someone who could move at least as quickly as he. He held his forehead in both hands, convincing himself that he could have taken the lad had not Walt intervened. Excuses aside, the fact remained that he had neither killed Astraea nor stolen the clasp, and when he had clambered ignominiously back aboard Elusive, it was to find out that he had lost most of his crew. His final mocking laugh had been mere bravado. But there was worse to come when he went below and saw that the door of the forbidden room was open. He had stepped in eagerly, hoping that the shipstone would energize the clasp he had taken from Ulnair. He stripped back his sleeve and pulled the cover from the round table, but when he looked down, the top of his head had grown tight, as if a huge pair of hands were squeezing his brain. 
The shipstone was no longer in the center of the plotting table, nor anywhere else in the forbidden room. He fought the fury that threatened to overcome him, taking huge, ragged breaths until he no longer trembled with the desire to kill someone, smash something, take revenge on who or whatever might be closest. Around and around the table he paced, faint green light from his dimming clasp, reminding him at every turn that all the stones were gone. The pain in his head went on increasing, and then it disappeared, as suddenly as if he'd entered the calm in the eye of a hurricane. He stopped pacing, stared at his clasp, and saw that the thin spear of white light at its centre was pointing northwest toward the shore. Mufrid walked slowly one more time around the table to confirm what he had seen. The pressure in his head eased, and he began to think. Somehow, during the fighting between the two ships, Estrella must have stolen the elusive shipstone. Mufrid also reasoned that because he had lit his clasp from Estrella's, the two were twinned, tuned, and entwined, like those of Estrella and Janfar, whom he had envied until he had bested them through trickery. Then Mufrid's lips curled back from his teeth in the smile that his crew had learned to fear. He strode up onto the deck and prepared to chase the stolen shipstone into Charton Harbour. Sitting alone on the beach, staring across the water toward Elusive, Mufrid resolved to ignore all that had gone wrong with his plan. The pain in his head transmuted into a huge sense of satisfaction. He celebrated the force of his will that had given him the strength to sail into the Charton Harbour by night, to survive the fall from the masthead, to kill the attacker who had grappled with him in the water, to swim landward for what had felt like forever, to crawl out onto the beach, to resist the cold and exhaustion that had threatened to drag him down into oblivion, until fortune directed him to the upturned longboat and the strongbox under it. Now that he was dry, fed, and in command of his situation, and had quenched his bottled-up fury by killing Kurt, Mufrid knew that he was invulnerable and unstoppable. His run of bad luck was over. He would find Estrella's son and take back the power he had stolen. When dawn glowed in the east, Mufrid saw that the tide was lifting the longboat that he had heaved and pushed to the water's edge. Lights twinkled aboard elusive, and faint sounds of voices came to him on the wind. Two rowing boats appeared from the shadows of the ship's eastern side, trailing ropes that gleamed in the growing light. The last of the elusive's crew were preparing to ease her off the shoal where she had been resting, and by the direction of the two boats in the water, Ufrid knew that their destination was Charton's Wharf. He stood, put his shoulder to the stern of the boat, eased it into the water, and climbed aboard. As he took the oars and began to row, a dull throb at his temples reminded him to avoid situations that made his skull too tight. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit EstrellaTrilogy.com for more about Estrella's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.